What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health, sponsored by peer-run support communities Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Welcome to our new broadcast station, KBOO, in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Daniel Mackler. Daniel is a former psychotherapist who has specialized in treating people with psychosis without medication. He's also a filmmaker and the director of the recent film, Take These Broken Wings, Recovery from Schizophrenia Without Medication. He recently returned from Europe where he was researching alternative residences and treatment programs. And he's also the co-editor with Matthew Morrissey of A Way Out of Madness, Dealing with Your Family After You've Been Diagnosed with a Psychiatric Disorder. So welcome to Madness Radio, Daniel Mackler. Nice to be here, Will Hall. Exciting. Yeah, it's great to have you. You have just come back um, from traveling around Europe. You're working on a new film about alternative treatments. Is that right? Yeah, I actually have the rough cut done of two new films, and each set in a different country, each focusing on a different program that treats people who have been diagnosed with psychosis. Great. So we want to hear about that and um, get into the details about those programs a little bit later on the program. But why don't I start by just telling us about um, how you got interested in taking a non-medication, an alternative approach to experiences of madness, extreme crisis that get diagnosed as psychosis, because you've worked for many years as a, a therapist working with people. That's right. I found when I became a therapist, I thought, well, if someone can heal whatever problems they have or work through whatever problems they have without medication, certainly that seems better from so many different angles. But at the same time, I saw some people that wanted to take medication. And certainly in social work school, they all my professors said that, you know, when you're dealing with someone who has any diagnosis of psychosis, like schizophrenia or bipolar or schizoaffective or a brief psychotic disorder, that medication is the first line approach, it's necessary. And when you do an intake on someone and they have any sort of psychotic symptoms, the first thing that you need to do ethically is refer them to a psychiatrist for a medication evaluation. And I was a little bit starry eyed and I was like, well, maybe that's what I should do until I became a therapist. And I actually started listening to clients and finding that a lot of clients didn't want that. And a lot of people who were on medication, especially the neuroleptics, the antipsychotics, they described them as being horrible and told me just constantly about all sorts of side effects and basically that they felt worse on the medication, but for very many different reasons, they couldn't come off. Uh, sometimes they were addicted or sometimes there were all sorts of complicating situations where they might lose their housing, they might lose certain benefits, they might get kicked out of a clinic, they might, and some people were on certain orders where they would even have to be locked up in a psychiatric hospital. So did, did you come out of social work school planning to focus on people who have different diagnoses of uh, psychosis, or did that just sort of emerge? Well, it's a funny thing, because I remember in one social work policy class we had, we had to describe what we wanted to do as clinicians when we graduated. And I said, I want to go into private practice, and I want to work with high-functioning people. And I said that. And actually, at the time, I meant it. And that was very early on in school because I sort of had an image of working with people and I would be in a nice wood paneled office and working with the 
people who really wanted to delve into their traumas and people who worked and could pay money and I didn't have to deal with insurance companies. But what happened throughout the process of social work school is as an intern, a social work intern, a lot of times I got stuck working with the clients that all the paid clinicians didn't want to work with. And a lot of times that was the people who were the most disenfranchised on the most medication and with the most severe and complex problems. And what I found is that something in me got ignited, some part of me that just had always all my life felt like an underdog and had been put down in very many ways and disrespected. And I found that the people with the most severe diagnoses were the people that actually my heart went out to the most. And the people that at some deep level inside of me, I related to the most. And I felt like these are the people who nobody cared about. Can you give us an example of someone from uh, when you were in school, someone who really um, touched you in that way? I had several people who had severe diagnoses who were basically just passed from intern to intern at mental health clinics. And whenever the next batch of interns would come in and the previous batch would leave, they'd get assigned a new therapist because none of the the permanent clinicians wanted to work with them. So people who were hearing voices and people whose behavior was considered strange or bizarre, people who had body odor, people who didn't practice certain types of personal cleanliness or look like uh, quote-unquote high-functioning people. And so I found people who were put in a position if they wanted therapy that they constantly had to find somebody new every eight months or something like that. And basically, a big part of their problem in life, from what I heard them say, was that they had no connections with anyone. And then in the therapeutic field itself, they were put in a position where they weren't even allowed to connect with their therapist for more than eight months. Another example I could have was I spent 10 weeks doing a summer internship at the wonderful and fantastic New York State Psychiatric Institute on their electroshock therapy ward, their ECT ward, which also had women with eating disorders on the ward. And I used to go down and spend a lot of time on the schizophrenia research unit, which is considered one of the best schizophrenia units in the country, only to get down there and discover that the place made me want to vomit. They used to take clients out and they used to put them in case conferences with tons of psychiatrists and psychologists and interns. And everyone would just sit there and watch them. And everyone could ask them questions from the audience. And This is a place that was supposed to be ethical, and I found instead that they'd get these vulnerable, terrified people sitting up in front of a room of 40 or 50 people, and they'd get complete strangers from the audience picking them apart with questions. And they'd have some moderator, who was usually a psychiatrist, uh, sort of deciding who would be called on. The person who was considered the patient wasn't even allowed to do the calling on himself or herself. And it it was really sort of like a freak show, and it was it was horrible. It was almost like it was almost sort of like raping a human being's psyche. And and I just remember thinking, this is disgusting. This makes me really angry. And then the other thing that happened is when I started working, I started speaking out about what I was seeing. And I started getting a fairly unpopular reputation where I was working. And the problem is, because of that, I wasn't making great friends with the other clinicians I worked with. I mean, I liked them. There was always a politeness, but I think they'd all go and hang out with each other. And I was sort of isolated because I was so different. And what I found a lot, especially toward the end of my first few years of working in clinics, was that clinicians didn't want to refer me their quote-unquote higher-functioning patients. They would refer those kind of patients to their friends, and they would refer me the scraps, 
that's how the, the therapy clinics considered the people that had a lot of problems. They, they considered them like the less desirable patients. So I ended up working with a lot of people that nobody else wanted to work with, people who had the, the tough diagnoses, especially the people who had the tough diagnoses who had rebellious attitudes, aka didn't want to take their medications as prescribed. And over time, what I started discovering is the people who were rebellious, I didn't care what their diagnosis was. They could, they could be quote-unquote high function or they could be quote-unquote totally disenfranchised from society and not fitting in at all, not able to work on disability. I loved working with the rebellious people because what I found is there was just some connection I was able to make when people had a rebellious spirit. And I started working with people and realizing that everything basically I'd been taught in school was a huge lie, especially when it came to people who had the most severe diagnoses. So say more about that. How was it that you were taught uh, these lies in, in school? What, was, what were some of the things that you discovered? Well, one very simple thing was in school, they taught us the first most important thing is to listen to the client. That's the first number one rule of being a social worker or a therapist. Listen to the client, meet the client where he or she is at. But then at the same time, we got a completely conflicting message that if someone had a diagnosis of psychosis, we actually weren't supposed to listen to them. What we were supposed to do then is we were supposed to trust our own judgment above what they said. So really what we were being told is don't listen to them, don't listen to the delusions, don't listen to the hallucinations, refer them for medications, make sure they take their medications, and that was suddenly our job. And when people said, I don't want to take my medications, or my medications make me feel awful, we were supposed to give back this teleprompter script that said, well, you need to take your medications, they're good for you. Of course, they're going to have certain side effects, but the effect of the medication is going to outweigh the effects of you know, the side effects. So you're going to have to take them anyways, and we're supposed to follow up. And suddenly it's like, we weren't supposed to be therapists anymore. We were supposed to be more like policemen who were chasing after people and punishing them and getting them in trouble if they didn't, didn't do what they were supposed to. And it was all supposed to be done in the name of for their own good. And what I found is that was complete and it was a lie, and it was offensive to people. And what we were also told was that when people reacted, people labeled as clients, reacted to having their therapist suddenly be an agent of the state, being like a police force, and the clients got angry, which was appropriate, angry and frustrated and felt betrayed, we were supposed to use that. Now, they weren't saying this explicitly, but actually sometimes they were the people who taught us and the supervisors, that we were supposed to use that as a further sign of their pathology, that they don't have self-control, that, you know, that they have more mental problems, that they're unstable, that they're, if they feel betrayed, then they're paranoid. And so if we're dealing with people that already have severe diagnoses, it's very, very easy to fit them into a category of being sick when they have any sort of healthy reaction to being mistreated. And so you would see clients who were and justifiably angry because of the way that they were being treated by the care that they were being given. And then that anger would, it's, would then itself be seen as a symptom of their pathology, their illness, their disorder. And that would be also considered a symbol of their untreatability, of the fact that they were incurable. And so the whole way the system was set up, I saw so many clinicians do it, is that it was not there to help people. It was instead there to pressure them to do 
what this preconceived idea of the system was. And the whole preconceived idea was to get people to take their medications, to go into the hospital, and basically to be docile, subservient, broken people. And that infuriated me because on a personal level, at some very, very deep psychological level, that was exactly how I was treated by my family as a child. And that just absolutely infuriated me. Even though I was never in the psychiatric system, I was never put on medications against my will. Everything that I saw happen to these clients just enraged me because this is how my parents treated me at some deep, profound level. And then suddenly I was like, I was hooked. And I was like, I'm here to fight for people. And the worst thing that can happen is they can take my license away. That's the worst thing that they can do to me. Whereas for my clients, the worst thing that could happen to them was they could be sent to prison, psychiatric hospitals, they could be locked against their will, and they could be force injected, they could be held down. For me, the worst that could happen was I could lose my license. And I made a decision a long time ago. The worst they could do is take my license, and I'm going to fight, and I'm going to be willing to lose it. And I I made a decision a long time ago that I'm going to be ethical. I'm going to do what I feel is right, not what the system has told me, because I felt the system was clearly, clearly unethical. And all I ever heard, once I became very outspoken in this attitude, and in sessions with my clients, I was very outspoken about this. And suddenly what happened is I found my clients started opening up and telling me all sorts of stuff that they never told other people because they felt safe. I was like, I'm not going to have you locked up. I'm never going to, I'm never going to have you, you know, force medicated against your will. I'm not even going to suggest medication. If you want medication, that's a different story. I still think we can always try to find alternatives to put medication as a last option. But if you want it, that's your right. And I can help you try to find a psychiatrist who might be wise in giving you informed consent. But for people who didn't want to take medication, they had a hell of an ally in me because I was angry about what psychiatry was doing. Yeah, that's a really huge point you're making, Daniel, because I, you know, I've started working as a therapist uh, last couple of years as well. And there are just so many people who are locked into these power struggles with providers, that with the system that's supposed to be yes. off- offering care to them. But it becomes really like a power struggle. And it is often reminiscent of people's struggles with their parents, with their father, with their mother around yes. control and you have to get your behavior in line and that's oh, not yeah. that's not the kind of environment that is going to create safety and trust and opening to talk about vulnerable feelings and trauma and actually do the work that needs to happen in in therapy so i, I really commend you and your courage to be able to be outspoken in that way because it, it really takes an extra effort um daniel what would you say to someone maybe who's listening to the program and saying well wait a second don't don't these are people who have mental illness they, they need their medications they need to be treated with uh these uh, pharmaceutical interventions because i mean they have a biological mental illness and you know one of the things about mental illness is that it makes you confused about what's real and not what's not real so of, of course it makes sense that doctors and the therapists are trying to pressure them to take them to take their medications because that's going to make them feel better right? Okay. So what I would say to somebody like that is that actually there are very many cases where what you just said is absolutely completely accurate. And the people for whom that's completely accurate are the people who have been on heavy neuroleptics for a long, long time. And because of the neuroleptics, they can't get off their medications very easily. They do need their medications and they do have a biological brain problem. And that's called addiction to heavy, heavy neuroleptics and all the side effects of the medication. Neuroleptics meaning the antipsychotics that get prescribed for schizophrenia and bipolar and psychosis. So sometimes I would say that to my clients. I'm like, 
I know you want to get off your medication. I want to help you get off your medication. The thing is, you've got to be wise about it because you can't just come off your medication quickly. You actually have a brain problem and that's caused by the medication. This is the, the iatrogenic effects of your medication. So you have to be very, very smart if you want to get off your medication. You have to be wise about it. You have to be logical and you have to use the best of your logical ability and your insight and your self-control to be able to help yourself optimally get off the medication. Yeah, that's something we talk about quite a bit on, on Madness Radio is that the medications themselves cause cause brain changes and then you are in a situation where you do need your medications. But what about the other side of it of someone who, who's coming in and they're maybe suicidal or they've been living on the, on the street or they're having wild, terrifying visions or they're hearing voices or they're totally shut down and then the traditional approach is to say, well, look, this, these are symptoms of a mental illness, a mental disorder. Let's treat you with medication yeah, I was being a little provocative with my last answer. The bottom line is everybody who's not on medication, when people tell them you've got a brain disorder and you've got mental illness, that's complete crap. And it's not true. Now, if somebody desperately wants to take medication, I, again, think that's their right. But at the same time, if somebody comes to me and they're having a lot of problems that might be labeled as psychosis and they, they really want to kill themselves, I never would tell someone to take medication because I think often that takes away someone's very basis of hope that they can figure it out themselves. And I think if you, if you want to empower someone, you try to help them find completely other ways to do it where the strength comes from within them, not where the strength comes from a bottle of pills that you got to take. What about situations like uh, someone who can't sleep, though? Well, that's a very interesting thing because I was just visiting the Open Dialogue place up in northern Finland in western Lapland. They see a lot of people who have first episode psychosis where they do prescribe medication there, but they prescribe short-term sleeping pills just for a couple of days. So I, I don't have a problem with that, but I was never a prescriber. So if I saw someone who, let's say, came to me, who was referred to me, who hadn't slept in a few days, they were having symptoms that might be described as psychosis, they were hearing voices, and they were having ideas that by conventional standards would be considered bizarre or strange or impossible, and they, they couldn't keep their thoughts in control, I would look at them and say, my God, I'd probably be that way if I didn't sleep for four days. Exactly. That's one of the reasons that I raised that, because it's just such a common thing that sleep deprivation drives people into these psychotic states or, or states that get called psychotic. Right. And it's actually, it's hard. I mean, what would I do? I'd try to find any way in to figure out how to help the person get to sleep. Now, sometimes people were fairly irrational if, you know, if they hadn't slept in days. And sometimes they were quite irrational. Make, I would just put it on the bottom, you know, put it right down on the table. This is the number one thing you need to do. You need to figure out how to get to sleep. Now, usually there were reasons that people weren't going to sleep because I know for myself, if I can't go to sleep, there's a reason for it. I'm usually under a lot of anxiety, under a lot of pressure. Things are starting to surface, maybe my old traumas, maybe I'm feeling really trapped somehow. So sometimes what I found is that people, if they could just get what was really deeply off their chest out in a therapy session, even one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes, and they could come to some degree of resolution, some of the anxiety that was preventing them from sleep could be resolved, and then they could go to sleep. For instance, I would get sometimes people who come, came to me who previous therapists had told them, you have two choices. You're going to either go right now to a psychiatrist and get a medication or you've got to go to the emergency room and get locked up in a hospital. And these are sometimes people who had no health insurance and they were terrified and they were like, I've got $3,000 in savings. What am I going to do? You know, I can't afford more than two days in the psychiatric hospital. I don't want to take psychiatric medication. So I really don't know what to do. And I don't feel the therapist, I trust this therapist at all. I would say to people like that, well, I don't have to charge a very high fee 
in private practice and I worked out of my own apartment, I could charge whatever I wanted. So sometimes I would say, well, I think the best thing if you want to try it, especially this is this is something that, that was key. If I saw someone that was really suicidal and I was, I was scared, I would say, come every day, every day. And they'd say, well, I don't know if I can afford coming five days a week. I'd say, who said five days a week? Every day means seven days a week. And get people to come every day and sometimes come for two hours. And sometimes, oh, not, not sometimes, I, I had it happen very often. The people who were very, very suicidal, if they came every day, a lot of times the suicidality would go away fairly quickly. But then it would be like, often when people were suicidal, they just had lost their hope, or always, I suppose, they'd lost their hope. And sometimes it was just for lack of a human connection. And so sometimes connecting with someone very, very intensely could help alleviate the suicidality. No hospitalization, no drugs. Daniel, did you find that you often were behaving yourself as a therapist in very unconventional, innovative ways? Because that's that's a pretty um, different way of working to see someone every day or have them come for a couple of hours. It sounds like you had a lot of flexibility and creativity in the way that you work with people. I never felt that I was practicing in a terribly alternative or radical or creative way. I just felt like I was being myself. But I noticed when I worked in the clinics and I would share even little bits with other therapists of what I was doing, they would give me this really funny look like I was out of my mind. What kinds of things were you doing? Talking to people about things that were labeled as delusions, getting into their delusion with them sometimes, treating it as if it wasn't crazy, but actually listen to it, listening to it respecting it. Because the, the clinicians tend to think, oh, you're just going to make it worse. You're going to join someone's delusion. You're going you're to reinforce their paranoia. You're going to make them think that it's real, and you actually have to educate them that it's not real. Or another thing that clinicians would say to me is, that's really insulting to treat somebody that way because you know what they're saying is delusional. So if you start pretending that it's actually real, you're actually being really disrespectful to this client. Well, did you feel like you were being dishonest with people? I mean, if someone says that, oh, so-and-so is, my neighbor is broadcasting their thoughts into my mind and they can, they're reading my mind every night, would you just say, yeah, that's happening, that's, that's true? Sometimes. I had so many different ones. I mean, I don't want to be specific because people, people could hear, the, hear their own story. But if somebody, let's, what was the example then you gave? Someone could think that people are broadcasting thoughts into their mind. I, I, would, I would ask questions about it and say, what is the person saying? So in a sense, yes. I would treat it as if it were real, but at the same time, I would also allow myself that tiny little 1% shred in my head that had skepticism that maybe what they're saying was real. I, that would be my answer to those clinicians. It's like, I, I, often I was dealing with someone who was, when people were labeled with these things called psychosis, that at some level, they were sort of in that same place where there was a certain, I always believed there was a certain reason that people were thinking the ideas that got labeled as psychosis. And I would give people the benefit of the doubt and not, not treat them as a child, but I would say instead, when I talk with a four-year-old, treat them as a human being, forget how old they are, but just treat someone as a human being and take what they're saying at face value and engage with people. Because if it's something that's really deeply preoccupying someone and they're focused on it and they're, then there is some level of reality, they're living inside of it. And so you don't, you don't necessarily have to uh, agree with them or confirm what they're going through, but you can take it seriously on their terms and help them explore it and, and understand it. And that's a really dramatic, um, a dramatic way of creating a bridge across this gulf that, between the, that often exists between the so-called normal people and the so-called psychotic people because there's something real that's going on there. There's a feeling, there's an experience, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's some kind of trauma in the background. There's something that's actually truthful for the person that, that if you can reach it, you help overcome the isolation that people often get into. 
Absolutely. And, and people's feelings are real. I mean, I have my own experiences in my life. I've had a lot of crazy experiences that are really terrifying where I got into thoughts, you know, and fears and ideas that could be labeled as paranoid or delusional. I never, I don't think I ever hallucinated. I would say actually I've had taste hallucinations before and those are extremely unpleasant feeling like I'm eating metal or eating dog poo or something like that with the taste and becoming really afraid about it. But a lot of my experiences that would probably have been labeled as psychotic if I'd gone to a hospital and spoken with a clinician were experiences when I was hitchhiking and smoked marijuana. And I became very paranoid sometimes. I became afraid that people were going to rape me and afraid that people were plotting to hurt me or kill me. And I would become very scared. And sometimes I would just freak out and ask people to pull over and get out of the car and later think about it when I'd calmed down and realized, you know, it was totally just my fear. But I was putting myself in really extremely stressful positions. And it's like when I would talk about it afterward with people, especially if I was still somewhat in that very paranoid place, I really needed people who took me seriously and believed what I was saying. Even if later on I was able to come to the conclusion that what I was saying may not have been that realistic, the fears I had were realistic. And I needed someone who would meet me right on the level of where my fears were and where my feelings were. And that made me feel respected. So I think to turn, turn around as a therapist and give that exact same thing is actually very respectful. And to just totally undercut somebody's emotional reality is very disrespectful. Because the ideas that people have are just the manifestation of the feelings. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio. We're speaking with Daniel Mackler. He's a former psychotherapist who specialized in treating people with, who are diagnosed with psychosis without medication. Daniel is a filmmaker who uh, is the director of Take These Broken Wings, Recovery from Schizophrenia Without Medication. And he recently returned from Europe where he was researching different alternative residences and treatment programs. So you, at some point, Daniel, you made a decision to sort of step back from being a psychotherapist and then start to research um, programs around the world, especially in Europe, that are, are really bringing some of the insights that you learned from your uh, private practice into creating alternatives for what is it that people really do need. And so let's, let's hear about that. Maybe let's start, tell us a little bit about your, um, your film, Take These Broken Wings, Recovery from Schizophrenia Without Medication. And then let's, then I want to hear about your, um, your travels in Europe recently. The, the, the first movie was Take These Broken Wings. I did it after I co-edited a book with a psychiatrist in Chicago called Beyond Medication. And it was basically about as close as you can get to something published by the system that was, that was strongly anti-medication for people with psychosis. And the problem is what I discovered is it was published by Rutledge. It was very well received. And what I discovered is that it had great contributors uh, and Catherine Penny, Daniel Dorman, Joanne Greenberg of I Never Promised You a Rose Garden wrote a chapter. And what I discovered was that nobody read it and that these academic kind of psychiatry books, even if they're really good and really radical, basically go almost unread. And I thought, wait a second, I've got this whole slew of people. I've just edited all their chapters. I have a direct contact with them. I said, this should be in a movie. I think people would watch this. So I decided to make a movie on the exact same subject as that book, and they all agreed to be in it. So basically, most of the people who I edited in this book, I asked to be in the movie, and they said yes. And so I made a movie on recovery from schizophrenia without medication, just making the point that there is hope that people can recover from this thing that gets labeled as schizophrenia without psychiatric medication. And I wanted to make a movie that was a movie about hope. You know, I worked with so many people. You called me courageous earlier in this radio show. 
I really think the people I worked with were much more courageous than I was because I think they had so much more on the line. For me, it was my career. For them, it was life and death. About three years ago, I realized that I was completely exhausted as a therapist. It was just so hard work, especially working outside the system with so few allies all on my own in my apartment. And that's what got me thinking. There must be better systems out there. There must be better ways of doing this because just doing it all alone was such a heavy caseload, working for so little money. I was like, I really am tired. And I had to acknowledge that to myself. I wanted to be Superman, but on the inside, I was like, I'm not. I'm burning out. I realized that what I was doing was not sustainable. It was like overplanting a field too many years in a row. I needed more fertilizer, and I couldn't find it. So I decided to get out, spent most of my time in Northern Europe and Finland and in Scandinavia, visiting different treatment programs that help people, the same kind of people that I was working with. Sometimes people with thing, that thing called first break psychosis, and sometimes people who had been horribly diagnosed and labeled and crunched through the psychiatric system and squished through the cracks of the psychiatric system for years and decades. And also what I did is I met with tons of psychiatric survivors who had recovered from all around Europe. Well, Daniel, let's start with um, what you said about people who've been in the system long term who haven't been served, because this is often one of the more challenging questions of how do we create really effective programs to, to kind of return people back to society when they've been really damaged by psychiatric treatments, they've been really socialized into believing a sense of powerlessness, helplessness, the, the patient role, they become very dependent on the medications that they take, they may have totally lost the basic habits of society of how do we work, how do we interact with people, how do we take care of ourselves. What are some examples of programs that you see working in Europe that we can maybe learn from to how to help help people like this? I think the basic thing is, I mean, I've seen a few. There's one that I like the best, and this is a program in Gothenburg, Sweden, for people who have been crunched through the system and, and been crushed often by the system, the psychiatric system. But I also think that programs can be as diverse as human beings are creative. So this was a system that was started by two social workers back in the late 80s, maybe 87, 88. And what they started a program for was taking people who were diagnosed with psychosis, with schizophrenia and other, other of the roughest diagnoses, and people who were just given up for lost basically by the system. And they placed them in farm families in the countryside. And so basically the farm families became a kind of foster care. But there already were programs like this running in Sweden, foster care agencies for people who were diagnosed with severe diagnoses, but they weren't that successful. And this program did some things differently. One thing that they did was they provided intensive, intensive support to the farm families. So the farm family became the primary agency the ther primary therapeutic agency for helping the person who was living in their family. And these were they chose families much like Soteria House did. They, they chose people, families who were compassionate, who were stable, who were loving, who were honest. So they chose people not at all based on their psychiatric experience. And they actually particularly wanted people that had no psychiatric, no experience in the psychiatric system. They just wanted people who were good people, good, honest, humble, hardworking people. Then the agency would provide very, very intensive support to the family. What kind of support, like psychotherapy, family therapy training, and that kind of thing, conflict resolution? or I would say more conflict resolution, but basically just helping them work through whatever it was that they were going through. So basically giving them an ear to talk about, they call it supervision. So they would go and actually supervise the families, and they would go and meet with the families. The families would come in. They would also provide a sort of group supervision for the families and for the clients living with them. 
and they but they what they basically provided is an open 24-hour-a-day lifeline to these families. So they could call if there was ever a problem. And then there was regular weekly meetings. And and where did the clients for this program come from? Are these people who were maybe living in group homes or residences or or community treatment programs or, or hospitals and they've been long-term? I, I think it mostly it was coming out of hospitals. And these are people who are long-term, been living alone, and so they don't really have their own families to connect with. And Yes. And, and the thing is, I... What I saw more is what they do now. So I'm not, I'm not an expert on their history, but I think it was a lot of people who, who had been long-term psychiatric patients. People who are not working, who are on disability, who are just really having a lot of chronic problems and heavy, heavily medicated. and It was people, people for whom nothing was working. Nothing was working, who had really been abandoned. This is a called, we call these the chronic mentally ill. That's the terrible term. And then they would put them in farm families of, that, they were, that were selected not because they had psychology training or therapist training, but because they were just seemed like solid, hardworking families that lived in the in the Swedish countryside. And then they would live there and then provide them supports and supervision and conflict resolution and help. And then and then what happened? Did did people find that they started to change and get better? Was what's the effect of it what's the effectiveness of this this program? Basically everybody I talked to had tons and tons and tons of experience and experiences of people who had gotten well, who had gotten off their medication who had reintegrated into what's conventionally considered society and gotten back to work, gotten on with their lives. But there's a few other things. One thing is they, they only took people from the local area. And it's a fairly big local area, but it's like central Sweden, around or south central Sweden around Gothenburg. So if they weren't picking people from outside, like in America, a lot of the, the better higher end programs that do more humane work, residential kind of programs, they are for rich people and they take people from all around the country. Or, or all around the world. This program is for local people. And the second thing, and this is what I love about it, it's free. Nobody pays anything. So the therapists and clinicians do get paid. The families do get paid a small stipend, not much, basically for like having a border in your house, but not, not for actually doing clinical work or anything like that. Not a lot of money. So Sweden has a socialized medical system, so that's probably a big part of the, of the payment. But Sweden is generally terrible for psychiatry. That's my experience. It's like Sweden's not a great place to be a psychiatric patient. Most of these countries aren't. It's just there's little radical hotbed centers in certain places, like this place in Western Lapland, Open Dialogue. It's a radical hotbed in the middle of a country that's fairly conventional for psychiatry. Same thing with this, 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 this place is called the Family Care Foundation. It's a radical hotbed. It's like it's not, this isn't all of, uh, all of Sweden. So the Family Care Foundation, that's the one in Gothenburg? Yeah. And also, to go on a little bit more about their program, then they also provide, provide intensive therapy to the people that we might call clients. They don't call them clients. They just say they're people. And, so, and the other thing, the first thing that happens when the people get into their program is this is how they have it worked out, part of the Swedish medical system. They, they stop diagnosing them the minute the people walk into the program. People don't have a diagnosis. They go to a family. When they go to the family, the family's not given a whole printout. Oh, yes, you're having someone diagnosed with schizophrenia and they have this history. And previously, they were diagnosed with you know, bipolar affective, blah, blah, blah. No, forget all that. There is no diagnosis. Instead, you have a person coming and the person's got a lot of problems. And the people, they, they don't use diagnosis from beginning to end. Daniel, what would you say to someone who says, well, look, that's in Sweden. The culture is so different. That could never happen in the United States or Canada. Or... Uh, I did it. <laughs> I didn't use diagnosis. Here's a funny thing. I did use diagnosis as a clinician because legally as a social worker in New York, I had to. But basically, everybody who came to me got diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Some people wanted, wanted a diagnosis of depression. Some people had long-term schizophrenia diagnoses and for various reasons wanted to keep that diagnosis, so I would. 
I would keep the diagnosis, but it was on paper, and I made it very clear that I couldn't give two shits what their diagnosis was. It didn't mean anything to me. I didn't go to bed at night thinking, oh, I'm dealing with a schizophrenic today. It's like, I, I just thought of the person as, this is so-and-so, or this is so-and-so, this is John, this is Mary. I don't think of myself as a diagnosis. It's like, yeah, I have anxiety sometimes, but I don't think of myself as an anxiety disorder. I'm just a person with anxiety. So do you think that this model of putting people in, in a family, taking people out of institutional context and putting them in a family and then providing lots and lots of therapeutic support, do you think that that's potentially something that could work in the United States? I don't see why it couldn't. This is what's so funny is psychiatry is made to be this super complex thing that's so difficult to learn and you have to learn your school of therapy and you have to do it's like this was simple. I mean the primary the primary therapists in this organization are families who have no experience. They're just I mean the, the, it's just the routines of the family, the compassion of the family, the the structure of the family, getting out and milking cows. Come on, you can't be in bed all day. You may be a little bonkers today, but come on out, you're going to get out and work with us or they had so many stories that I heard. And now they've expanded it. They're not just farm families. They have people who do all sorts of other jobs. I think there's still a predominance of farm families. And they also don't just work with people labeled with psychosis. They work with basically anybody. They work they place children in families. They'll also let's say let's say you get a mother who's diagnosed with schizophrenia. She's got three kids and the kids are all been farmed out to foster care. The mother's been in a psychiatric hospital for a few years. They'll take the mother, they'll bring her three kids back with her and they'll place the mother and the three kids in a farm family. They'll, they'll take the whole kit and caboodle and work with everybody at once. They inspired me because also what really inspired me is when I sat down and talked with the clients. And what I heard is people who are happy with psychiatry. And that's not something you hear very much in the United States or anywhere. Mostly you hear complaints, horrors, and they did this, they did this. What I heard consistently from clients was that, or the, they don't even call them clients, people who I would call clients or psychiatry might call clients, people who said, this was really good. I've been through absolute hell. And finally, I got to a place that's treating me respectfully. They're respecting my wishes. They're, they're listening to what I have to say. They agree with me that it's good to come off the medication. They have psychiatrists who are going to help me come off my medication, have been helping me. And, they ha and I'm working with people who have a lot of experience with people who have been through just what I've been through, and they have a hopeful attitude. They're not labeling me. They're not stigmatizing me. And they know what they're doing. And they, I think it could be replicated in the United States. I think it could be replicated anywhere. It's, it is expensive. It's not a cheap program, but for the government, that is. But when you consider, if people are getting well in a few years... The long-term savings are dramatic, absolutely. It's a, good, it's a good investment in getting people out of the disability system and getting them out of going in and out of hospitals and... Yes. And we're not just talking money, but we're talking the savings of human beings, people who feel, like, who feel like their lives have been saved. And it's just like, I think that money shouldn't even be an issue when we're talking about this. I don't care if it costs 10 times as much. Health is considered a human right. It's not about something you can put a price tag on. Yes. And, but I thought as a therapist that Medicare sometimes would pay me to see people two, three, four, five times a week. And they, they called me up to complain sometimes. You know, why are you seeing people so much? You know, we, we don't want to pay for this. This is Medicare. But then when they would actually look at some of the people that I was working with and they'd see they'd been hospitalized 30, 40, 50 times, four, five, six months at a time, it's like psychotherapy with me was so incredibly cheap compared to someone who gets hospitalized regularly that if even if I didn't help someone at all, if the only thing I did to help a person was help them stay out of the hospital, I'd save Medicare hundreds of thousands of dollars right up front.
And it was it was just like I wish they'd paid me three times as much. I didn't get paid much. Medicare was a stinky insurance for they paid so little. You know, it, it was like the, the savings could be immense. And then when I saw people who got a look of hope back in their eyes, I just think you can't put money on that. Daniel, you mentioned the Open Dialogue Project in Western Lapland and in, in Finland, and we actually had Mary Olson on the show um, a few months ago. Actually, people can listen to that on the Madness Radio website. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that program, and then maybe mention some of the other programs you've also looked at in, in Europe? Open dialogue. It's in Western Lapland and Northern Finland, right up by the Arctic Circle. I was there in June, so it was it was sun all the time. The sun never actually went down. So at three o'clock in the morning, it was still sunny. I stayed on the grounds of their mental hospital, which is it's a pretty big mental hospital, but they've they've actually done so well in helping people get well from this thing called schizophrenia that the mental hospital, by and large, is so unused. There's whole wings of it that are just empty. So I was able to stay in one of the side um, external wings of the hospital. So I was around there. But most of their work that they do at, at therapy clinics in the nearby towns, or not even at the clinics, they work at people's homes. And they work mostly with people who have first break psychosis. So they, they meet people before they've ever come into the psychiatric system. They meet people right in their first minutes of crisis. And they, they have a very good reputation among the population. So people, when people are having crises, people call their program right away in a matter often of a matter of days or weeks once the crisis starts. So they're not seeing people two years after the crisis has started. They're seeing it very, very fresh. And they do intensive family therapy by and large and network therapy, meaning they also work with people's networks. If that's not necessarily their family of origin, it might be their friends, their teachers, whoever's important to the person. And they use teams of therapists and they see people from the very beginning until the problems worked out. Part of their philosophy with people diagnosed with psychosis is that they avoid the use of neuroleptic medications as long as possible. And I think for about two thirds of the people that are having first break psychosis, they never even get a single dose of antipsychotic medication. Where in the United, whereas in the United States, it's considered unethical not to give everybody antipsychotic medication. In fact, there's a big push to put people on antipsychotic medications before they even have symptoms of psychosis called prodromal um, medication, which is a whole other scary thought. And open dialogue is also getting tremendous success that's documented in the research outcome findings that they've been able to actually show that in quantitative data that this is having a huge impact on helping people. Yeah, they're getting, in the Western world, they're getting the best results in the world for first break psychosis. They're getting 85% of people are fully recovering from the psychotic break to the point that people aren't, the psychosis isn't becoming chronic and they're not getting diagnosed with schizophrenia. So basically schizophrenia is disappearing from this whole area. But that's that's the background. What I experienced is just being there, hanging out with the people. I was there for two weeks and just constantly hanging out with the clinicians, hanging out with them at night, going home with people, sitting in on tons of therapy sessions and constantly talking to clients. Are, is there any downside to open dialogue or any sort of questions that you have like, well, is this actually going to work? And do you think it's also something that could be replicated in the United States? I know that Mary Olson and some other folks have been doing some work in this direction. There was recently a training with um, the founder of open dialogue, Yako Sekula, that I was actually part of. But do you think that it could be um, brought to the U.S. and expanded uh, you know, across the Atlantic? Well, I'll quote what they said, but it also happens to overlap with my experience. And I also visited Jakob Sekula in central Finland and interviewed him there too and spent a few days with him. That what everybody there says is don't try to replicate our program. Take the best parts of it that will work in your system and do learn from us, but take what you like and leave the rest. I mean, there's certain things in Finland that are kind of unique, that are a little different. It's a, low, it's a small area and open dialogue is the mental health system for the whole area. What they do 
is that's basically the only treatment that's available to almost anyone. So that's gonna, you're going to be hard pressed to convert an entire 70,000 person population in an area to just one psychiatric system called open dialogue. Could be done, but I think some of the things that that definitely would be applicable or don't put people in the hospital if they're having a psychosis unless, you know, they're totally, truly are a danger to themselves. And I, I think there's even things to do to avoid hospitalization there. Avoid neuroleptics as long as possible. And in my opinion, do anything you can to avoid putting people on neuroleptics, antipsychotics. Third thing, whoever, whatever clinician first gets contact with the family or with the person labeled with psychosis, that clinician's job is to take responsibility for organizing the whole treatment. I think that's great. I think this shuffling people from one provider to the next provider, and then you see one person for eight months and then another person for a year, and then, oh, now you have to go to substance abuse treatment, so we can't work with you about this issue. They don't do any of that in open dialogue. They take responsibility for the person's entire treatment. I think that's great. And I think, I think in our entire system here, regardless of what kind of problem someone has, and medical problems too, that clinicians should take an incredible amount of responsibility for whoever they're working with, that person who's called their client or patient. And I think that that's, that's just part of do no harm. I think that's ethical. And they do that up there in Finland. They really do take responsibility. They also meet people right away. And they don't, they don't say, oh, we'll give you an appointment in two weeks or a month. I hear that all the time from people here. Yeah, I called a clinician and she said, yeah, I can meet you, but you have to wait until December 15th before I can meet you. It's like, no, they meet with people within 24 hours and often on the very same day. I think that's something that we could do. It's a standard that we should try to uphold as clinicians is to help people immediately, not put them off. People get a chance to talk about their problem right when it's there on the surface, before, they've, before it's turned into something else, before it's been medicated, before it gets too far, before they've developed defenses against the problem. And so it's, I think the freshness of it, meeting with people immediately, is a beautiful, beautiful thing that actually gives people a much better chance to resolve it before it's become more complicated. And I think sometimes when people are having these serious problems that get labeled as psychosis, the problems can very, very quickly snowball into something much more immense, and sometimes within a matter of hours or days. So I think meeting people quickly is a great thing that any program here can do and should do. I don't think any program I've been to is perfect, but I think it's like at least programs that are getting these quote-unquote good results and do a lot better at respecting people, we should look at them and study what they're doing, and maybe we could do something better. There's no reason to think that there couldn't be programs that are way better. They just haven't been come up with yet because people maybe – haven't had the space or not the creativity or the liberty to try. So Daniel, I mean, you've, you've seen both sides of it. You've seen the incredible suffering and abuse that people experience in the psychiatric system and the real lack of good, caring, alternative kinds of, of treatments. And you've also um, done some research in Europe where you've seen some very promising alternatives that are actually really, really helping people and really promoting recovery. Are you hopeful personally? Do you feel like it's possible to turn the mental health system around in the United States? And what do you think it's going to take to do that? Oh, well, I think that's a, just a great question. And you know what? I am hopeful. I think that things like the Hearing Voices Network, things like the Psychiatric Survivor Movement, I think that is what gives me my greatest sense of inspiration. Because when people feel empowered and people can start to help themselves, when I start to help myself, I mean, I don't believe in therapy first. I believe in self-therapy. That's what I promote. Like, do it yourself. I, that's 99% of my healing that I've done has been by myself. So when I say people start to take the reins of power and feel empowered and start to gather together in groups, you can't beat them. 
and it's going to it's going to become something bigger and there's no way the psychiatric survivor movement isn't going to keep growing and so that's what gives me my greatest inspiration and when the psychiatric survivor movement starts to come around and starts to actually use the powers of their experience to assess these different treatment programs i think the treatment programs are only going to get better and i think it'll help psychiatry so i actually believe that the world's going to get better in terms of psychiatry and i'm putting all of my energy toward helping it go in that direction. And it's just like, and I think there's a lot of people out there who are doing the exact same thing. And an analogy I use, it's a political analogy. It's, what, it's that the United States military cannot win in Afghanistan. They cannot win because they're fighting people on their own turf, people who are not going to lose. Those people cannot lose. So it's just like, I know it's probably a little risky to say that, but I think it's, in my opinion, it's an analogy to psychiatry. It's that ultimately the psychiatric survivor movement is going to win and it's going to get a lot stronger. Daniel, we are just about out of time. Give people your contact information, your website, and then mention your film and the book that you that you co-edited. Well, the book, I don't think we mentioned the book, A Way Out of Madness. That's actually, Will, you yourself have a chapter that you've written in that one. It's dealing with your family after you've been diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder. It's called A Way Out of Madness. Uh, my website is www.iraresoul.com. So that's I-R-A-R-E-S-O-U-L. Com. I'm also on YouTube and Facebook and all that. So, Daniel Mackler, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you, Will. It's great. You've been listening to an interview with Daniel Mackler. Daniel is a former psychotherapist who specialized with treating people with psychosis without medication. He's a filmmaker and director of the recent film Take These Broken Wings, Recovery from Schizophrenia Without Medication. He's the co-editor of A Way Out of Madness, Dealing with Your Family After You've Been Diagnosed with a Psychiatric Disorder. And he recently returned from Europe where he is researching and creating two films on alternative treatments for people with psychosis. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall, music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.